Okay, good evening, and welcome to lesson number four, Meditation from Sinai. As we did in the previous classes, we have a little recap of the uh, previous classes that we did, and we're now up to lesson number four. And previously, we've learned about how we've explored the Jewish spiritual meditation and teaches us how meditation gives us the ability and the tool to become more aware of our soul, and by extension, the soul of the universe. We've discussed how in every single thing in the universe there's a godly spirit, there's a godly soul, and therefore God is guiding every single thing, as we mentioned about the divine providence, to every single extent. There's nothing by chance and nothing by coincidence. And when we develop this mindset that is consistent with the spiritual nature of the world, we then begin to appreciate how that everything in this world is for a purpose, and we have that divine consciousness, and we shift our awareness to experience the godly spirit within every single thing of existence. We've also gone through that the goal of Jewish meditation is not to escape the material world, but on the contrary, but to find within the material physical world the godly spirit, the spirituality within every single entity that exists within the world, and to elevate it, by seeing the divine consciousness with all these types of things. The divine, this Jewish meditation teaches us and gives us the appreciation that everything we come and cross and everything we encounter, there's a godly purpose. And the more we are aware of this purpose, the more we are aware that we have a purpose and that everything in the world has a purpose, we then are able to fulfill that divine dimension and that gives us also a state of joy, serenity, purpose, resilience, and recognizing that we're not here just by chance, things don't happen just by chance, everything is there by divine plan, and it's up to us to recognize and understand and appreciate that divine plan that is there. Today, we move to another idea, and we continue with the theme of seeing how everything in this world has a divine consciousness, but even more so, we look at the idea that Jewish meditation can give us real practical benefit while investing in our lives with meaning, passion, purpose, holiness, and depth. And where we're going to start with today. So here are five common activities. You can see this in exercise 4.1 on your student page, and one, page 116. And there are five different um, ideas here, five common activities. And consider them carefully which you are, in which, to which extent you are present, fully engaged during that activity. So if you rate yourself from one to five, five being fully present, one being totally distracted. So let's go through them and feel free to shout out your response. Reading a book, one through five, five being fully engaged, one being totally distracted. Four, okay. Okay, next one. Uh, praying in the synagogue. Five. Five, okay. Five. Try to be five. Unless somebody's talking. Okay. <laughs> you ought to be honest. It's all right. Don't be offended. <laughs> if the rabbi's having a nice, <laughs> if it's a nice song being sung, okay, let's go. Next one. On a phone call with a friend. Five, fully engaged, unless you're driving while you're on the phone call, right? <laughs> okay. Waiting in line at a supermarket. No, that's like a two. A two, okay. While you're shopping. 
And what about at your desk at work? <laughs> I won't tell your employer. Okay. So what we have over here is human beings as an individual, as a creature or as a creation, we've always had the problem of distractions. And there are so many things in our life that need our attention and we try sometimes doing, giving attention to everything at the same time and the challenge is to be able to give the attention while at the same time staying on top of all of them. And there are so many things that are happening in our life and in our rush to achieve more and to do more, what happens? We start living less. And in an attempt to, so to speak, not miss on anything, we, what do we do? We miss on almost everything. And in an attempt to be able to have all these things that we want to connect with so many people, we don't truly connect with anybody individual. It's like if you have a party where 200 people come, you can speak to each person for two minutes. If you would have a party with five people, you can engage in those five people in a more intimate way. So there's, but in today's society, we have trouble connecting deeply with any of these people because our brains are so to speak called scatterbrain. We're all over the place. And it's very difficult to keep up with them. And here is a quote from uh, about this problem, acknowledging this issue in rabbinic literature. And this is a brought in a commentator on the Mishnah. His name was Rabbi Ovadio Bartanura. Says the following. One pious fellow would often pray, May God protect me from an enduring of a scattered soul. People in an earshot asked, What is a scattered, a scattered soul? He would respond, Those who own many assets that are located in several divergent locations and are forced to divide their attention to stay on top of them all at once causing the skull to scatter its energies. When you have things all over the place, you have to remember what's with that thing over there, what's with that thing over there, and what happens, you can't focus or retain your attention to one thing specifically. In our fast-paced society that we live in today where we are able to have, and within seconds we can contact people, we have, whether it's social media, whether it's email, whatever you want to talk about in our fast-paced, ironically, the technologies that were seemingly designed to make our life easier, what happened, complicate things even more. Just imagine one time your computer's going slow or shuts down or has a virus and all of a sudden you can't go to work anymore. Why? Because the computer that was designed to help you, uh, so to speak, uh, mainstream or to be able to narrow or to make it easier, when it works, it's great. But all of a sudden, if there's a little bug in the system, that's it. You're lost without it. Or even the computer that's there to help you use for work can be distracting if something pops up or whatever it may be. Just take a little example on cell phones. Our cell phones are a tool that we have a computer in our hand. You can access anything, anyone, at any time. But because we have our cell phones, they are a constant distraction. Why? Even if you're on your email, you're doing work on your cell phone, how many times do notifications pop up? Or all these different things that everybody else is trying to get your attention. Whether it's an ad in your email, or whether it's an ad in what you're trying to do on a website and you're trying to accomplish, study, learn, whatever it may be. There are these constant, so to speak, um, notifications or, intrind or intruding, intruding things in your life to distract you or that are crowding your mind space and not allowing you to do what you need to do. Okay? And therefore, we're constantly torn with our responsibilities. We are constantly torn, what do I do? Whether it's work, family, and everything in between. And this type of frazzled life is what causes people the most anxiety, stress, in their life because they want to be here and there at the same time they want to be able to be with their family and at the same time they want to be in their work 
and they want to be able to respond to everybody's messages and why didn't I respond? It's already five minutes. The guy didn't answer my text or he didn't answer my WhatsApp. He didn't answer my email. And all of a sudden we're getting worried. Does he not like me? How come he didn't like it? And he did like it. They said one of the things, the person that developed the concept of likes on social media, you know, putting that little thing, that whole system, he's regretting it because today it's become such an infatuation that people are looking. How many likes did I get that people look at and, and it became a bullying tool in school? The concept of people, so to speak, being in the present or trying to be able to do a multitude of things at the same time, or instead of them being involved in one thing, they're involved in nothing. And therefore, we don't have the headspace to all of a sudden try to see things differently. And because we don't have that ability to focus, we don't have that ability to look at things. And all of a sudden, we're trying to catch up where we're going from here to there because we get distracted and easily distracted. To combat this, the spiritual masters always encourage us to slow down. And over here, there's a little Hasidic anecdote that the Baal Shem Tov used to say based on the words of the Shema in text number two. The Baal Shem Tov explained that we must always maintain a settled mind and not be in a rush. He would refer to the verse in Deuteronomy, you will be swiftly eradicated. The Hebrew, verse, the Hebrew phrase, avadatem meheira, allows us for the alternative reading in the form of a directive, you must eradicate the swiftness. What the Baal Shem Tov was telling us and saying, you got to slow down. If you want to be able to do something properly, you need to be able to take the time to focus, to analyze, to see it, to be able to understand it and appreciate it. One of the constant, just to take a little example, people think you get an email, I need to respond right away. No. Take a moment, understand what was written, what's your response going to be. And most cases, you'll see that your response will change by the case if you slow down. Many times as well, when we read something, oh, I just read it very quickly. And because of that, what happens when we read something very quickly? We miss the pointers that we need there. So what do we need over here is, what the Baal Shem Tov is telling us is a moment, he says, take, slow down. Not only that, at the moment when a person gets angst or anxious, or worried, or concerned, or feels a need to respond. The knee-jerk reaction is because we want to feel swiftly that we need to respond. The moment we slow down and take a little bit of a moment to think about what's going on, we'll see that all of a sudden the matter changes. Now, of course, what I'm saying is easier said than done, because it's easier to be able to say that I should eradicate um, this swiftness, but when I know that I have a lot to get, uh, I have a, a lot of things on my plate, and I, be able, and I have to get through it because whether it's my boss or my family, somebody is waiting to be able for me to get back to them, it's easy to say, slow down. But one second, if I don't get back to them, my job, my family, whoever it may be, or maybe this important meeting I might miss. So is there a practical way that we can slow down to help avoid the clutter that's in our mind or what's, whatever is going on there? So what is the best way to go about it? And how do, what is the practical way that we can be able to use to go about it? Just out of curiosity, does anybody here have any tools that they use to focus to slow down? Or oh, we're all still in a rush? Huh? Just stop. Okay, we'll talk about that. And as you just said, the solution that's always given is... The solution that's usually given is... As you just mentioned, just stop. There you go. The solution that's usually given is just stop 
and we're so become attuned to what's going on in the moment. Forget about the past, forget about the future, just focus on what you're doing right now. That's usually what's given the, that, to focus on what's happening at the moment, and by doing so you free yourself from all the stresses and everything that everybody that's trying to vying for your attention. Yes, there's a lot of bills to pay, there's a lot of emails you need to answer, but you focus on the present, what do I need to be doing right now? And if we focus on the present, we are able to utilize and be able to accomplish much more things. And because of that, we have all the Dale Carnegie, time management, or whatever it may be. But one of the things of recent that became a very popular trend was something called mindfulness. Mindfulness is a popular practice that's called living in the moment. The founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction was a fellow by the name of John Kabat-Zinn, who went around teaching these concepts of mindfulness. And the concept of mindfulness was that you live in the moment and you're able to zone out everything on the side of you. But the interesting thing is centuries before this fellow came up with this beautiful idea, already the Torah taught us about mindfulness. And this technique, Judaism taught us in many different variations of this advice. And in this variation, the Torah looked at it and the Talmud discusses the concept of worry. And the Talmud says the following statement cute statement as follows. Text number three. Rabbi Yosef stated, the valuable, the valuable passages within the book of Ben Sira may be taught. Grieve not over tomorrow's woes, for, you're not, for you know not what a day may bring. You may not be alive tomorrow, and you are worrying about a world to which you will not belong. What is the Talmud telling us over here? The Talmud is making it very clearly that you should only focus on the present. Rabbi Yosef, who is quoting from Ben Sira, says as follows, that, if a pers- that it doesn't pay to worry. Why doesn't it pay to worry? Or at the same time, don't be excited about what's going to be tomorrow or worry about tomorrow because you might not be there tomorrow. Either you might not be there or what you're worrying about or what you're excited about also might not be there. So your worrying is for naught. Interestingly enough, Rabbeinu Bechaya, who is the author of the Chayvah Salavavis, that means the duties of the heart and talks about how one should have faith in God uses the same type of terminology and says one of the reasons why we have to have faith in God is because all your anxious and worries of what you might fail about might not even be there. So just have faith in God. But the simple meaning of it is basically, which is there's no reason for you to worry about the future because it's simply pointless. It may be for naught. It may not just happen. How many times do we worry about what that, in, that interview might, what the guy might tell me? Or what might happen if I go there? What are they going to respond? How are they going to say it? And we come there, the guy's not there. They weren't even thinking about it. Nobody was even talking to you. Nobody even noticed you. And we get all excited, worried, and anxious because of nothing. And it's all this build up in our mind about what if. And all these what ifs are actually just something that creates anxiety. An alternative reading that the Talmud uses as well, when he talks about the problems that might not be here even tomorrow, it's a Talmudic passage, which he says as follows, and this is a very famous Jewish aphorism, and gives us the antidote, so to speak, to worry. In Hebrew, it works as a poem, so I'll say it first in Hebrew because it sounds really good. I think in English also they made it sound as a poem. Ha'avar ayin ve'asid adayin keheref ayin imkein Daga minayin. The past is no longer here. The future has yet to appear. In a blink of an eye, the present will disappear. So what case is there for fear? 
puts it simply. You know, I think there was an English uh, poet who took the same idea and he made it um, a fellow by the name of Alan, or a woman, I should say, historian, Alice Mose Earl. She used to say, the clock is running, make the most of today. Time waits for no man. Yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, today is a gift, that's why it's called the present. I'm sure you heard that before. So what we have over here, the advice, and the idioms are, as we know, all well known. And they're all very good ideas, and several studies have proved its efficacy. That the very fact that if we don't worry about what's going to happen tomorrow, what happened yesterday, we automatically become more productive and we're able to utilize our minds, our hearts, our emotions to be able to be in the right place. And it's utilized many different types of mind-based therapies that have prompted billion-dollar pop cultures that have come up in today in the concept of mindfulness and helped it. And that's what basically when we talk about mindfulness is to zone out everything else and to only focus on the present. The Jewish concept of living in the present is more than that. It's more than just an awareness of a non-judgmental acceptance-free zone, stress-free zone. In Judaism, we don't look to escape the reality. That's the difference, as we've seen from the previous classes, that Jewish meditation is not about escaping the reality. It's about taking the reality that we're in and utilizing it and energizing it for a productive purpose. And therefore, when we talk about living in the moment, it's not about avoiding the challenges because the pitfalls of zoning everything out is basically you're putting a band-aid on the situation. You're basically saying, I may have bills to pay, but I'm not going to think about them. But eventually, you've got to pay those bills. I'm not going to take the things that bring me an anxiety and stress or think about it, but eventually, those things are going to bring you an anxiety and stress. If it's not today, it'll be tomorrow. So how does mindfulness help me from the outside culture if I'm just avoiding it? I'm avoiding an inevitable. What Judaism tells us is even though these things may be uncomfortable, we have to live in the moment. That means we have to take and engage in those challenges, but in the present moment, as we'll soon see. Not only that, when we look at it, we have to understand that Judaism takes it from a perspective that we're not only looking to be able to create a band-aid on the situation, as a practical technique, we're going to look from the spiritual wisdom of the profound depth of how it's already ingrained for the past thousands of years in the Torah, and specifically looking at it from a spiritual meditational perspective that redefines the way I approach life the moments in life that I come for, the time that I'm using, and automatically when I look at time and I look at these moments that I have, I then look at them as moments that help me grow, give me the ability to cherish it, experience it in its fullest, instead of escaping it, but to be able to utilize it in its best way. And therefore, what we're going to learn, how Judaism adds the depth and substance to this concept and practice of mindfulness, to be able to allow us to live in the moment, but live in the moment, not escape all the other moments. You know, they used to say there was this fellow who hired a tailor to make him a pair of pants. So he comes to the tailor a week later, he hopes the pants are ready. The tailor tells him, sorry, it's not ready yet. Okay, he comes back a week later, the tailor tells him, still not ready. Four weeks later, the guy comes to him and says, oh, the pair of pants, finally the tailor says it's all ready. The guy pays for the pants, 
And while he's paying for the pants, he tells the tailor, you know, God took six days to create the world. You, to create a pair of pants, took you four weeks. The tailor looks back at the guy, he says, look at the world and look at my pants. Last week we spoke about the concept of the soul and of the universe. That everything that exists in the universe has a soul. Everything that God created from the smallest blade of grass to every event in our life has a divine consciousness. Today we're going to go a little bit deeper and look into the mechanics of the spiritual energy that actually gives life into the reality. That means looking into the spiritual element that makes the creative world happen. Looking into the creation and getting a deeper understanding of what the creation is all about to help us appreciate the spiritual nature that exists in the world. When we look at creation, we tend to sometimes think the creation, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. That means that happened 5,782 years ago. That God created the heaven and earth. And ever since then, everything's been an autopilot. The sun comes up in the morning and it goes down by night. And the seasons come. There's winter, there's a fall, and there's a spring, and there's summer. And everything just happens as it is and runs on its own. Following this, so to speak, this inbuilt a pre-constructed idea that the God called nature, and that's for the world runs. However, we will see that actually, in Jewish tradition, teaches us that creation is a constant create process. It's an ongoing process. That means from 5,782 years ago, from God began to create the world, it continues to be created every single day. What does that mean? Let's see text number five. A common perception. This is brought from the Shalar of Yishai Alevi Horowitz, who was a Kabbalist in the 16th century. And he wrote many books on the Kabbalah based on commentators on the Torah. And he says the following. A common perception is that God created everything outside out of absolute nothingness. And then in the beginning of creation, God imparted to the hosts of heaven the forces of nature, the power and the ability to run the world. The world just operates according to its manner. As if God had to let go of his creations, it is only and occasionally that God may desire to override the natural order. As long as God does not override it, the world runs on the power it obtained from the time of creation. That's the way people believe. So every so often God makes a miracle, but generally he lets things go on autopilot. But the proper belief is that God in his goodness renews each day constantly. The first act of creation actively directing its flow of vitality. And here he says it clearly. Should God cease to do so even for an instant, all would be naught. Its existence would be utterly nullified. This, common, this idea, this text, is what is echoed in many Jewish mystical works, teaches us. That if God would, God forbid, for a moment cease to create the world, even for an instant, even for an instant, the world would all of a sudden disappear. But what does that mean? The world seems pretty solid. Nature, I mean, if there are people that are worried about climate change, about it being destroyed in billions of years, but nobody thinks that in an instant it's going to be disappeared. Why would God have to bother creating the world perpetually? What does it mean even that God's creating the world perpetually? Why is he doing so? 
So let's take a little example, a metaphor. If you were to have a film that you see on a wall, you see this beautiful picture on the wall. Do you think that somebody painted that picture on the wall? Take for a moment your finger, and if you put it on the projector, what happens? The picture's gone. Did I think for a moment I made the picture disappear? What did I do? I had blocked the picture from being projected on the wall. Was the picture on the wall and then I erased it? No, because if there was a picture on the wall, I would have to actually go with the cleaning tool to be able to erase that art that was written on the wall. What was happening? There was a constant flow of light, of energy, that was being projected on the wall. The moment I took my finger and blocked that light, no longer is the picture existent. So this beautiful painting that you see on the wall was there because the light was projecting it on the wall. The moment I put my finger in front of it, that, will, that light no longer is there. Because we know nothing is on the screen. It's only being projected from the camera, from the projector, whatever it may be. Even more so, the colors and the lines on the screen weren't there before the projector. They only came about because I projected the colors on the screen. The moment I turn off the projector or I block the lens of the projector, no longer does the picture exist. Let's take the same in our universe. When our universe, when God created the universe, He created it, the world was created by God. Before God created the universe, let's call it a blank canvas. There was emptiness. The material that God could have used to be able to make the world didn't exist. The world was created ex nihilo. He had to create the universe out of nothingness, so to speak. And therefore, when the world was propelled into being by God, into this spiritual creative energy, it is only there because God is making that energy come there. The moment God stops or ceases to shine the light of that projector, so to speak, to shine the light of the creations on the canvas, everything shuts down. Because where's the energy coming from? God's spiritual energy. So if the energy stops flowing, what happens? The world becomes to nothingness. Therefore, God has to perpetually create the world. He has to perpetually keep his projector on to allow this beautiful canvas of the world to continue to be in existence. Because again, the actual energy of the world that exists comes because God put it there. Without it, there was no energy. It didn't just happen on its own. There was a creation that God put on this canvas. He put it there. And therefore, as long as he continues to project it, it will be there. Let's see it in the words of the first Chabad Rebbe in text number 6. He says as follows. Here lies the answer to those who deny individual divine providence and the miracles recorded in the Torah. And the root of their error, they err in comparing the work of God, the creator of heaven and earth, to the work of a man and his schemes. When a silversmith has completed a crafting a vessel, the vessel is no longer dependent on the hands of the craftsman. And even if his hands are removed from it, and he goes on his way, the vessel remains in the exact same image and from as when it left the hands of the smith. These fools conceive the creation of heaven and earth in the same way. However, their eyes are blinded from seeing the great difference between the work of man and the making of heaven and earth. 
The work of man consists of fashioning one existent thing out of another already existent thing, merely changing the form of the appearance, processing silver into a vessel. Creation of heaven and earth, however, is creating something from nothing. When something is created out of nothing, if the power of the creator is withdrawn from the thing created, God forbid, the created being would revert to naught and utter ex- non-existence. The activating force of the creator must continuously be present in the thing created to give it life and ongoing existence. So since we have over here that the, spiritual, the divine spiritual energy is sustaining the material world against its state of non-existence, so if God would, God forbid, cease to create it, even for a moment, its default setting would be nothing. So when we have over here, we have, if God would stop existing, if, if the world would stop existing. Oops. Sorry? Like what? Oh, like now, okay. So what we have over here is, that God is continuously investing in the life of the world in order for it to happen. The difference between man and God is that everything that we create, where does it come from? Something. I'm taking a plastic and I make it into a conformant and shape it into whatever I want. I'm not creating something from nothing. And therefore, I can leave the item and automatically the item will stay in existence. However, when it comes to God, he's creating something from nothing and therefore he requires a constant, uh, a constant energy in it. Simming, similarly, take for example, and this example is also brought in Hasidic texts in different places. If you were to throw something up in the air, throw a ball up in the air, how long is that ball going to stay in the air? Only as long as the strength of my hand that I threw the ball with. Why? Because gravity demands that the ball should fall down. I am doing something against its nature. So that ball is only going to stay up on the air based on the strength that I've put into the ball. And as long as that ball is standing in the air, it's because of my strength that I put into the ball. The moment my strength leaves the ball, the ball will drop. The moment God, so to speak, leaves the energy, the world becomes nothing. But let's go back to the metaphor of the projector for a moment. We'll notice something else. Think about this. When you have electricity, and when you have the projector, not only is the flow of energy or the picture on the wall coming only because of the projector, but the projector itself is constantly renewing itself. It's not the same light That's why if you ever look at a flashlight and you see all those particles, so to speak, it's the light is constantly making that complete circuit to be able to generate constant electricity to be able to make the light light keep on flowing. That means even in the world itself, whoops, just one second. Even in the world itself, the light, we look at it, it looks static. But the light, is it really static? No, it's something that's continuously being. So while the image seen static, it's really continuous. The same thing is also, while the world may seem like it took this natural course, and it's an autopilot, and it just happens, but what's really happening is, every single moment of creation, 
is constantly refreshing itself. Imagine your screen is constantly refreshing and you can see this even on a computer screen. The reason why you see it glaring and glimmering the whole time and on any, any screen is because those LED particles, if you have an LED screen or you see it more with the plasma, whatever it was, is constantly coming up. And sometimes when you see some of the lights die and that's when your TV monitor has some lights off and when you start the time for a new one, is because it's no longer regenerating itself. And the same is true with the creation. Each moment is a new act of creation. As we say it in our morning prayers in text number 7, In his goodness he renews his work of creation each day continuously. So while we take our own existence in for granted, and we see the physical matter as something which is constant, we need to remember that in truth, it's being renewed constantly. And the flow of the creation is not an autopilot. The world, for the world to remain in existence, the creation of God has to be actively renewed by God at every single moment. And every single moment is a new act of creation. And every single moment, God says, I want to create the world again. And it's a deliberate act of creation. While everything here that exists that we have is from new. And therefore, as we know, in order for such an abstract idea, so to speak, to be able to, which is seemingly counterintuitive, because if I look at the world, it looks like it's just happening on its own. What do we do? We have to meditate about this. We contemplate about it. And we take for a moment and understand and appreciate that everything that's happening is happening again for a purpose and this moment is here for a purpose. Automatically, this helps us in achieving a certain serenity. As we'll do this meditation now, we'll take a moment to meditate on this idea. Technologically magnificent, 
was exploding, carrying out aerial acrobatics. See it in your mind. And you are integrated with it. You're part of it. You feel the excitement. And suddenly, nothing. No sound, no light. So suddenly, stillness, darkness, movie theater, nothing on screen. The projector has for some reason stopped. The energy thrust has gone completed. You are back at the beginning. So is the world. The world is your movie. The world is your movie theater. And there's a projector. God projects reality into the world with Hashem's breath. Hashem breathes life into the world. And if God were to desist for even the briefest moment, it would return to a state of tahu babahu, nothingness, unknowable chaos. Sense and feel Hashem's breath, breathing life into the universe, projecting light, reality, allowing you to be an active participant. It's Hashem's animating force that constantly maintains life. You included in everything that you do, in everything that you see, marvel at the constancy of the energy thrust. Hashem's integration, involvement, maintenance of the world that you live in. Appreciating the creation in this light helps us recognize that in any given moment there's a new energy that's creating the world at that time. And if God intentionally created this moment with a fresh burst of energy, this means that this moment has unique value and purpose to you. Or else why would you have that moment? And over here the Rebbe puts it this way, text number 8, page 127. Humans, even if they are not in their par perfect state of balanced mind, with the, extremely, with the exception of extremely extreme cases, will not do anything without a reason and motivation. Certainly the absolute perfect creator and director of the universe who is also the creator and director of each human, does not create an entity that lacks a definite purpose. Each individual day, 
Each and every moment of the cosmic dimension of time is an individually created entity. It therefore follows that the theme and purpose of a specific day is distinguishable from that of every other day in the entire realm of time. In other words, the purpose of any single day in terms of that which God expects us to accomplish is unique. It is unique not only within the week which it brings or the month or the year, rather our mission in regard to this day is unique of all other days that are supported by the entire dimension of life. The proof is straightforward. God created this day as an individual unit in time. He surely has a unique purpose for this unit in time. This unique creation of His that cannot be accomplished with any other unit of His time. Were that not the case, God would not have a need for it. He would not have created it. The task of the Jew who created, who was created for the overt goal of serving God is to utilize each day consonant with God's will through accomplishing the purpose of the unique and particular day. Now this realization is something powerful. When you think about it and say, one second, every single day is not the same. Every single moment is not the same. Every single day that I have now is because every day calls for another mission. There is no such thing as an unuseful person. There is no such thing as an unuseful time or an unuseful day. Every single day there's another opportunity. Every single moment there's another present that existed, that never existed yet before and will never exist again. Appreciating and being aware of the godly purpose in every single one of these things gives us the ability and changes the radical thinking of what it means living in the moment. Living in the moment means that I'm not escaping life and shutting everything out of my life, but on the contrary, I'm taking everything in. I'm saying, why was I here put in this exact amount of time? What is my purpose for the now? Why is this time? To be present, not only to be present, but to be fully present in the moment in understanding and recognizing that I'm here for a certain purpose. But to fully invest myself in recognizing that whatever this moment calls for me to do, I invest myself truly to the task. In Hasidic terminology, Hasidic terminology calls such a type of behavior of self-mastery called a pnimi. A pnimi literally means internalizes. Who sees everything in the world and has understood that everything that he sees in the world we must internalize. It's not there just for show. That everything that happens around us and everything that happens in the world, especially that I experience, the reason why God wants me to experience it is because it has a relationship to me and I can affect its outcome. Text number nine. There's a famous saying of the fifth Chabad Rebbe of Shalom Dovder that a Pnimi is a person of profound internal integrity, is fully invested in each and every undertaking. At one of his public gatherings, Rabbi Shalom Dober sensed that his younger students were leading to the customary singing of a Hasidic melody as a furious pace because they were eager to hear the profound spiritual teachings that were being delivered following the explaining, following the singing. In response, he devoted an entire address to explaining that a Jew must accomplish each individual undertaking of divine service wholesomely. We may be engaged in an activity that serves merely as a preparatory bridge to a main task. Nevertheless, as long as we are engaged with this particular activity, we must be fully invested in the activity. 
This is fundamental principle for all situations he declared. That wherever you find yourself, you must be fully present. The Jewish ideal of mindfulness is in a sense seemingly opposite of what's generally accepted as mindfulness. The goal is not about moving everything out, but it is taking everything in and utilizing it to be realizing that you're fully present in the actual responsibility that you have into taking into account moving out the past and the future, but recognizing is what can I do? This moment that I have right now is a unique moment that will never happen again. And therefore I have to be fully present in this moment. I have to make sure I fully actualize this moment, bring it to its fruition, and therefore not be distracted by the past, the present, or any worry or concern, which gives me a certain serenity. Which this type of idea also solves another pitfall, another potential issue, which is whether we like it or not, our past defines our information of what we are right now. That means, based on my past mistakes, or my past experiences, or my past uh, things that happened in my life, whether I like it or not, I'm going to make decisions, inevitably, based on my past experiences. Not only that, I make decisions based on my future ambitions. So how am I able to be fully present in the moment, shutting out the past and shutting out the future, being engaged? Even more so, if Judaism focuses so much on the present, isn't there a concept that we know which is called teshuva, repentance? What is repentance? That I'm rectifying something that I did in the past. So that means it does take into account what happened to a past. So should I be focusing on the present or should I be focusing on the past? How do I combine the two? But Jewish tradition also teaches us to be mindful of the future. As you can see in text number 10, Alexander of Median said to the elders, Who do you consider wise? And what did the elders reply? Who is wise? Those who see and anticipate the consequences. So how am I able to be present in the future while considering teshuva for my past behavior and at the same time a foresight into future consequences? That seemingly seems counterproductive to living in the present. How does the Judaism reconcile the two? And therefore, when we talk about the fresh, taking what we spoke about mindfulness means, what can you do to make this moment the best helps us avoid these pitfalls? Because when I try to be fully present in the moment, it doesn't mean that I'm escaping everything of the past, which then wouldn't help me to do teshuva. It doesn't mean that I'm escaping everything of the future, which then doesn't allow me to calculate that maybe I have things to do in the future. But on the contrary, I have to take into consideration my past, my present, and my future to make my present fully, uh, fully, fully work. That means when the Jewish approach of being present means I have a unique opportunity right here. How am I going to make this unique opportunity work to its fullest? It's only if I base it on my past experiences and I'm going to calculate the future do I know how to make this present the best present as possible. Meaning, I take the past and the future in the other way of thinking of mindfulness. The past and the present, the past and the future are irrelevant. But according to the Jewish way of thinking, the past and the future are relevant because they are relevant to make my decision that right now this moment should be the most productive moment ever. 
And this is actually implied as we're going to see in the next text. When we talk about who is wise, when you see what is born, the consequences that are come from it, that means it doesn't say who sees the future, but who sees what is born. What's the terminology born? How is something born? I do an activity now that creates something. That means I look at what I'm doing now to see how what I'm doing now is going to be able to bring about a better future. That means my, I have a direct connection with the past, the present, and the future. I have a direct connection by focusing what my job is or who I am and recognizing that every single moment is there for me to quantify and qualify and utilize to its best by connecting to the past, recognizing the consequences that what I'm doing now is actually fixing the past and bringing about a better future. Look in the words in text number 11 of Rabbi Shimon ben Sedach. It says the following. This directive to anticipate the consequences does not contradict the statement of Ben Sira. Quoted in the Talmud, grieve not over the tomorrow's woes because you will not know what the babe brings. It is stated similarly in the Talmud, those with bread in their basket for today's meal who say, what will I eat tomorrow, exhibit diminished faith. This is no contradiction because we are supposed to consider the future and set plans in motion that will rescue us from future harm. But concerning that which is not within control, we should have full confidence in God and not worry about it. And here is the difference. Most cases of anxiety, worry. What do people worry most about? What was the conversation in today's class before we began? The weather. Is there anything you can do about it? Absolutely nothing. But most anxiety comes from, is it going to snow? If it's not going to snow, how am I? What does it matter? Are you going to change it? Actually, not going to change it. So that is called idle worry. But if I know that I'm making plans and I say, therefore I'm going to accomplish something today because there might be a potential storm, so therefore I finish my work so I don't have to go into work when it's snowing, that's not called worrying. That's actually being productive, utilizing my time now with knowing that there's going to be an, a brought about experience because of it. I am now doing something, I'm creating something from new. I'm giving birth to an idea, to a productive idea. This mindset of the panimi, which means a person who internalizes and recognizes that everything I do now, the past, the future are by him real. And therefore they consider anything else that's not going to help and be productive to what he's doing now a distraction. So living in the present, and what is our concern before when we spoke about mindfulness, people being totally distracted and not doing their responsibilities. On the contrary, living in the, to- in the present doesn't take away our responsibilities, doesn't deny our meaning of life. If anything, it lends to our meaning of life and gives us a profound responsibility in our shoulder to recognize that what we do, we need to accomplish and do it in the best way. It doesn't induce unnecessary stress. It doesn't give us things that I need to worry about if it doesn't concern me. And therefore, because I know they're part of God's plan to be in every single moment. But whatever aspects of my life do concern me, yes, I take care of them and I make sure that they're taken care of appropriately. There's an unbelievable story that the Rebbe shared in 1970, and I shared this story once before, which brings this concept to fully appreciation when you see how it's applied. In 1970, it was 20 years since the Rebbe assumed leadership, and there were many Hasidim that came from all over the world to celebrate 
on the 10th of Shvat, and they chartered a plane from Israel, and they were there for Shabbat. After Shabbat, the plane was supposed to take off 12 a.m. from JFK. Saturday night, the Rebbe made a Hasidic Fabrengen, and during the Fabrengen, the Rebbe, and which the Fabrengen would mean that the Rebbe would talk for many hours, and everybody would be listening, and so on. During the Fabrengen, the Rebbe gives, like in a more of a little of a joking way, he says, while we're sitting here talking words of Torah, there are people that are thinking about a plane that's in JFK. And he said the following anecdotal story, which he says it was in the early years of communist Russia. And his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, was meant to meet a foreigner in Moscow, to meet him, to be able to get from him, solicit some funds for the activities that the previous Rebbe was doing in Russia. Now you have to understand, especially that the previous Rebbe in Russia was considered a counter-communist. His life was always in jeopardy. And how much more so than now that he was going to meet somebody who was a foreigner, who was considered a capitalist, who was going to give him funding to be able to fund counter-communist activities. This was probably a life-threatening, a life-endangering uh, moment. And he had to take a train to be able to go to Moscow to be able to meet this individual. As the Rebbe walked into his father-in-law's room, he sees he's sitting there totally, completely calm, with an absolute calmness, penning a letter, writing a disc uh, concerning a Hasidic discourse. And the Rebbe says, the story says, and to my utmost surprise, I couldn't hold myself in, and I said, is, is it that strong? Meaning, have you gone that far? Meaning that in Hasidism, where it teaches us to have a contemplative level of meditation and that you're able to control your emotion, is it that strong where you're about to go on a life-dangering mission and you're just sitting here with absolute solace, as if there's no worry in the world, able to write and concentrate on a Hasidic idea. And the previous Rebbe turned to him and said, this is the definition of being successful time management. And he gave him the following uh, example. He says, the Rajba, who was a 13th century commentator on the Talmud, was a philosopher, was a Talmudic scholar, was a, ta- a rabbi in a, where people would send him questions from all over the area that he lived in. And he was also a physician. And every single day, he would also take a walk for his health. And once he was asked, how do I accomplish all of it? How do you have time in the day to do all of it? And he answered, he says, because whatever I do, I'm fully engaged in what I do. When I'm walking, I'm walking. When I'm a doctor, I'm a doctor. When I'm answering questions, I'm answering questions. When I'm a Talmudist, I'm a Talmudist. And the previous rabbi told him the same as over here. He said, this is called successful time management. We can't make our days any more longer than 24 hours. We can't make the time of the day stretch any more than it is. An hour is, there's a day of 24 hours, an hour is 60 minutes. But what we could do is make every minute count. And the Rebbe went back to the people that were there sitting by the Fabrengen. And he says, while we're sitting here, we need to be engaged in listening to what we're talking about. Then we can go and we go to the airport, we go to the airport. But if I have to be here, I have to be here thinking about what I'm doing. You ever notice people, and I see this all the time, especially people when they become retired, if they have a doctor's appointment in two weeks, they're worried about it for two weeks about the doctor's appointment. What do they do? For two weeks they can't go to any place, any meetings, anything, because in two weeks they have a doctor appointment. What do they do? They're taking a moment, an hour doctor's appointment, and it destroys two weeks of their time. That's why people who are 
not retired and only go to doctor's appointments. They've found studies that they feel sick all the time. Because what are they thinking about? What's their mind occupied? Even when they're not by the doctor. Even before they have a diagnosis. What if the doctor tells me to go here? What if the situation is going to be like this? Because where are they living? They're not living in the moment. They're living before the doctor's appointment and after the doctor's appointment and hypothetically if the doctor would tell me and creating themselves, making themselves sick. And this is a reality that we see every single day. So therefore, on a practical level, we have to ask ourselves, when we talk about and looking in the moment, we have to ask ourselves the following three questions. Number one, can I do anything to help this future problem? What can I do right now? Let's take the doctor's appointment. I have a doctor's appointment in two weeks in time. I don't know what's going to be. Can I help myself doing anything right now if I think about the doctor's appointment? It won't help me to think about it. It's not going to change the reality. Number two, can I do anything to repair the past? Because somebody offended me two weeks ago and I'm still bearing a grudge, can I do something to fix it or not? Because something happened to me, or whatever it may be, is this going to affect my life? How does it change my life? Can I do something about it? If I can't do anything about it, why is it on my mind? Why is it bothering me? And number three, if yes, if I could do that, if I, they will help me, that means if I could help the past, uh, and if I could fix the future, then yes, they are part of my present conversation. But if not, they have nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Discard them. They absolutely should not be in my present awareness, and thereby giving me the ability to create and bring about the possibilities. Because when we talk about the present, the present is this new creation. And we have the ability, and think about it on the flip side, on the flip side of it is because every single moment, and we talk about teshuva, when we talk about teshuva is number one, repentance means because every moment God creates from anew. So what happened yesterday is of no concern. And what happens tomorrow is of no concern. If right now I can connect to God and right now I can feel spiritually happy, is beautiful. Because every single moment is new and every single moment has to be rejuvenated. To get a better understanding in this, we over here go to something even deeper. In understanding the concept of time. To understand the creation also defines how we look at time. Time is defined by change and development. You know, there was once this kid who, as a seven-year-old kid, who asked her father what time it was. So he told her, it's 4.45. Then she looks a little worried and she starts looking at him and she says, I don't understand. How come whenever I ask somebody the time, they tell me something different every time I ask them? Time is something which is constantly evolving and changing. If everything in the universe were to freeze, what would we say? The time is paused. The spiritual root of the concept of of change is that the divine energy is something which is a continuum. It's something which is constant. And because it's constant, it is constantly changing. And the world is constantly developing. And as the clock ticks and you can't move it backwards, it only goes forwards. With every single moment in the world, there is something which is connecting and changing. So understanding time, number one, time is defined by change. But even more so, time is rooted the very fact that time continues to change is because God's energy is a constant renewed energy in this world, as we see in text number 12. 
the distinction between the temporal dimensions of past, present, and future, an all variety of events throughout the progression of time, as determined by the differences in the combinations of the letters of the divinely creative speech, which symbolize the specific divine creative force that invests in God's creations. The mystics explain a very interesting thing here, that the units that we use to measure time reflect God's way of connecting the world. On a broad scale, every year has a unique spiritual energy, and within every year, there's a direct flow that directly affects every time, every day, every hour, and even every second. The differentiation of the divine energy in creation is based on these increments of the hour, minute, day, week, month, and years, and so on. And if you look, to here's a graph that you can see in text number 4.1. I'm not going to go into the details of it. But you can see that the world was created through the prism of seven divine characteristics and faculties. And if you look, every single day, there's another one that it's for. And if you look in the way God created the world, you will see that they apply to it. So, for example, Sunday is kindness and love, and that's why that's a time of creation, which is a sign of generosity. Monday is restraint and fear, because that's when he separated the heavens. So you see restraint, water above, water below. Tuesday is harmony, that he took the waters above and waters below, and both of them now started to grow something. Wednesday is ambition, because one was smaller, one was bigger. And then you have Thursday, splendor, humility, where you have all the different animals that came into the world. Friday is connection, when man and man was created. And finally, Shabbat, Shabbat is royalty and receptiveness, where that was the concept of peace, receptive, accepting from all the six days, and finally on the seventh day. So you see, every single day signifies and symbolizes a concept in time. It's not just haphazardly happening. Every single thing has a, a, a unique thing. Take this even further. Te- figure number 4.4. 4.2. The name of God, which symbolizes the creation as four letters, Yud, then Hey, then Vav, and then another Hey. Each letter of this name is a code for a different energy form. Mathematically, this is very Kabbalistic, so I'm just going to just give you a little overview of what's here, but it's pretty amazing. There are 24 unique ways that these letters can be rearranged, reflecting the 24 unique energy modes. Twelve of those are the root energy of the month of the year and of the hours of the day. So if you can look in the next graph, you will see there are 12 months. Each one of them can respond to another way, the way God's name is written, and each one of them also have a different type of the day, time of the day, what it corresponds to. Just a little uh, tidbit to this. When the first Chabad Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, was arrested for 53 days in Petersburg, he was put into a cell where there were no windows. It was what they call today um, solitary confinement. And he was there, and that's where they had, because he was considered a rebel of the government, they gave him the worst possible punishment. But then they found out who he was, and there were people that used to come visit him, especially the Minister of Education and other people as well. One of these fellows walked in and asked him what time it is. They would like to you know, try to see what he knew. And he told them the exact time, whatever it was, 4.30 in the afternoon. Surprised to know how they knew what, what time it was. They asked him, how do you know? So he says, because every single moment of the day is filled with the divine energy in a different combination, as you can see, of God's name. And right now, God's faculty name is in this time of the day so therefore he knew what time of the day it was but if we break it down a little further and here's something fascinating while modern divisions of time divide the time into 60 minutes of 60 seconds which give us let's see how well your math is here 
How many seconds are there in an hour? 3,600 uh, seconds in an hour, correct? However, this week in Shul, we're going to bless the new month. And every time we bless the new month, we say, we announce when the month is going to be born or when the moon is going to be born. And we announce it's going to be 12.03 and six chalakim. What is six chalakim? Chalakim means portions. Portions are divisions in time, the way the Jewish calendar, or the way the Jewish calendar splits the time. And the way it's the Jewish traditional division of the time divides an hour not into 3,600 particles, but into 80, to 1,080, which is every chalak, every part, is three and a third of a second. Okay? So what we have over here is every hour, let's see if it shows up here on the screen, whoops. Every hour is split up into 1,080 parts, which we call halakim. Now you would say, okay, big deal. As we mentioned, every single minute, every single second, and every single millisecond is important. This is not a random, because this actually makes the spiritual makeup of God's name. Look at this text number 13. It is known that the sages of the tribe of Yisachar divided the hour into 1,080 parts based on their awareness that God's sacred name can be combined into 1,080 unique combinations. In each of these hourly fractions, a new energy emerges from another of these combinations to provide a creative energy to the entire cosmos. As we learned before, every single moment in life, every single moment in the creation is a new energy. The name of Avaya, of Yudke Vavke, is the name that creates the universe. And because of that, every single part, that means every single chilek, has another divine energy that creates the four-letter name of God. So in each one of these names, if you take the God's name, the Yudke Vavke, in a different energy form, they will form 1,080 possible combinations of God's name. That means this name of God, you can have that in 1,080 combinations. Just to give you one of those, it's a little complicated how it's done. Basically, every Hebrew letter of the alphabet has a number. But not only every Hebrew letter of the alphabet has a number, but every Hebrew letter of the alphabet, the way it's written, can be calculated as well. So, for example, Yud is 10, but also the letter Yud, it can be written Yud, Vav, Dalad, which would give me Vav is 6, Dalad is 4, so which give me the number of 20. So Yud can be the numeric value of 20. There are, if you take each one, then you count the actual letter itself as 1, and if you take each one, you go 20 times 20, then you go the next one, 20 times 6, because hey, Aleph is 6, and then 20 times 7, because Vav is Vav, Aleph, Vav, 20 times 8, and then you go 20 times 6, total will bring you to 1,080, which will bring you to the 1,080 energies or parts that there are. And there are many different ways of calculating this by each letter being a certain value. What we see from over here is, though it's, as I said, it's very Kabbalistic and so on, the point of this is that every moment of time is sustained by another energy and another combination of divine energy. What this helps us appreciate and understand is that it's not just another moment in time. It's not just another second. Every one of these seconds are energized by a godly faculty giving this moment something that the moment didn't have before. And because of this, 
as we see, each letter is a code for a different energy form. There are 1,080 combinations. And therefore, which takes it into another interesting point. Every single moment is contained by another combination. A person, fascinatingly, breathes 1,080 breaths per hour. How many parts did we say are there in an hour? 1,080. How many ways do we have of breaking up God's name? 1,080. What is that telling you? Every single breath we take, God is giving us another dose of life, another energy. How did we get our life? How did the human being come into being? What's the words that are used in Genesis? God breathed into the human being, and therefore he got life. That breathing into the human being didn't happen once, but every time we inhale and exhale, it's another divine energy giving us life, saying, you matter, you have a reason for being here, what are you doing about it? Live that moment to its fullest, giving us a new life, a new world. We're accepting a new energy for this moment, and for that moment we're here. It's not like it got stale. You need to breathe in the energy to give life into the next moment. Why do you have to keep on breathing? Why can't you just breathe once and that's it? God, you should wake up in the morning when a person's born, or wake up every morning, breathe in the morning, and it should be it. No, but you need constant oxygen, because the more oxygen you have, the more energy you have, the more stronger you are. It's not just breathing air, you're also breathing divine energy that's giving you life, that's giving you sustenance. Listen to the words in text number 14. The reason why we must breathe constantly at an approximate rate of 10,080. It's interesting that even in today, modern, I think it's between 960 and 1080, even if you... So, the, over here that it tells us. An hour is that the divine energy pulsates throughout the, all the spiritual worlds and energizes everything. As the verse states, you give life to all things. As this energy arrives in our physical universe, it manifests within the human. And even within the breathing creature in the air that we breathe which provides life as we draw into ourselves, because a fresh burst of divine energy is released each moment. We need to continuously breathe to absorb the fresh spirit of life that is now radiating forth from God. We cannot remain animated in the present moment with the energy of the previous moment, since the world has moved on to a new energy and a fresh dynamic that has redefined all of existence. This is the way the world operated since its creation and this is how it will continue until the end of time. He continues, text number 15. This is from the Reishis Chachma, or Bliel Divida, a rabbi in Sfat of the 16th century, a student of the Ramak, a great Kabbalist, said the following. It is explained that there are 1,080 parts to an hour which are reflected by 1,080 permutations of the divine name. The 1,080 fa- hour fragments also reflect the 1,080 breaths that we breathe each hour. With each breath we inhale, life-giving energy from another specific element of the divine name. As indicated in the verse of Deuteronomy, from that which emerges from the mouth of God, a person lives. Now, seeing that it is God who gives us breath and life, and our breath shall be directed towards serving God, this is the intent of the Mishnah, Medrash, which explains, every soul will praise you. As follows, Rabbi Levi quoted in the name of Rabbi Hanina, as having stated that with each breath, that we draw in, we should praise God. If we reflect on this, we will be afraid to sin and will conduct ourselves with humility and unpretentiousness. After all, how can we transgress and act frivolously with the life that God has given us at every moment? 
The same way we inhale and exhale. The same way a person says, I need to breathe. Breathing is not only because we need it for our physical material lives, but it is telling us that every single moment God is energizing us and giving us life again. We inhale the divine, exhale the creation, and accept our renewed purpose. Because if we wouldn't have to breathe again, then what's the reason why we could have stopped breathing? The very fact that God gives us another breath for this another second is because He recognizes that we need it. What we see is, very clearly, as we will see in this following meditation, how we can apply this in our life. open. 
everything flows in and out just as breath is breathed in and out every breath that you take a new phase of reality a new configuration of opportunity imagine if you could be conscious and aware of each moment in depth realizing Hashem is breathing in and out so that you can have a world with constantly new opportunities be aware look out for the openings that each breath brings into your life live deeply live meaningfully live purposefully breathe deeply So the meditations we practice today, along with the very practical applications we explored, you will see on page 139, there's a figure, it's the mechanics of mindfulness, which you can use for your uh, meditations if you'd like, and they are very practical applications, and they help us ground us, shape us, and give us the ability to see purpose and to help us focus. The meditations also give us the framework for our spiritual fulfillment, that recognizing that every given moment that we have, God is investing, A, in you, in your life, and everything that's around you, the entire universe, and to be able to be, so to speak, as the pnimi, harnessing and looking at the divine potential in every single thing of creation. To be able to do this, we know that it takes a frequent meditation, but as we saw from this last meditation, it doesn't take much. Every single breath we take, we can take a moment and meditate and say, and recognize that this is something to be advantageous of and recognize the energy that God is giving us, the renewed energy that God has invested in us for that very moment. And every inhale and exhale is a meditation on the profound mindfulness of the opportunity to give us this perspective of harnessing every single moment. So each breath is a new lease on life, giving us the ability to fulfill up our purpose. So here are some two takeaways that we have today that we can do to recognize that each moment is purposeful. Spending a few moments reflecting on this in some quiet place or even walking down the block but recognizing that every single moment should be purposeful in its own right. And even more so, to recognize, to focus on the opportunity of that individualized present moment. And you'll notice that all of a sudden when we breathe and when you do something which is something that we take for granted, all of a sudden has a new meaning. I remember hearing this, sto- this story uh, during COVID. There was this fellow, I think I said the story once before, in Italy, he was like a 95-year-old fellow who survived COVID. He was on a ventilator for X amount for like a long time in Italy, like I think for four or five months. And finally he got off the ventilator and he's on and he's uh, about to be going home from the hospital. And of course, when they leave the hospital, 
They gave him a bill. The bill was uh, extremely high for being five months in the hospital on a ventilator. And he started crying. So the hospital staff come over to him and says, what are you crying for? Are you crying because the bill's too high? So he says, no, I'm not crying for the bill's too high. He says, because I never appreciated. I've always taken for granted that I can breathe. And over here I see how expensive it is and what it means that you can breathe. When we take a moment and we recognize that every inhale and exhale that we do is divinely charged by God because He wants us to give a new energy and a new purpose in this world, automatically the meaning of the verse, kol neshama, every breath I take, I praise God. It's not only out of gratitude that I'm alive, but recognizing a mission that I ought to accomplish with it, or else why am I breathing? Every, it's the, it has a divine energy in it. It's made up that God's great name to be able to bring me to here. All of a sudden, it gives us an ability to achieve and understand and appreciate a greater meaning to the moments in life, even when it's a little down, and it, but at the same time, to appreciate every moment in life to its fullest. So here's just a recap on what we learned today. Here we go. Lesson four. Mind your time, the purpose and power of the present. One, to overcome the feeling of being scattered and unfocused, we have to slow down in life and be present in each moment. Two, the world is recreated by God every moment with a fresh and unique creative energy. is invested with a unique purpose and is valuable in its own right, not only as a lead-up to some future moment. Four, being fully invested in the present moment doesn't negate our responsibilities to the past and future. Whatever impact the present can have on the past and future is part of the purpose of the present and is relevant to this current moment. The units that we use to divide time reflect a change in the divine flow of creative energy. Six, we have to continuously breathe to take in life from the new creative energy that is animating the world at each moment. Each breath is an opportunity to recognize the sacred purpose that God is investing Next week, we continue on how, on this concept of cherishing mind, but also how we can make and bringing these lessons into our daily lives and how these meditations can reframe every part of our life and bring meaning into even mundane activities. Any questions? Yeah, how is the metaverse going to fit into all this? Ah.